Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show. Sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Woolsey. All righty, welcome to the Smart Investing Show. I'm Chase Wilsey, and I'll be your host for uh, about the next hour or so here, uh, talking about your financial needs, looking at individual companies, we call them stocks again, breaking down those fundamentals, giving you that unbiased, no strings attached, fundamental opinion about what you want to know about. Got a lot to talk about today. We're going to be talking about the employment numbers. Those came out yesterday. Always, we love to talk about that JOLTS report, which stands for the Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey. Well, we talk about drug companies as well the uh, Biden administration enacting some, um, I'm going to say, interesting regulations here that could be problematic for those major pharmaceutical companies. And also, too, we know about them. We hear about them. We'll be breaking down what's going on with Magnificent 7 that's really kind of carried the stock market this year. And you may have noticed, yes, no Brent this morning. So with me today is our financial planner, Harrison Johnson. Harrison, how are we doing today? Doing well. I know Brent always likes to be here and he enjoys doing the show, but today I get to be here, so it's fun for me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, hey, you want to take part in the show, I guess I'll call it. You know, we, we do take questions on our website. Go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. You got a stock, equity, company you're looking at buying, selling, or holding. Just leave us a note there on the website. Also, too, we take those financial planning questions that you may be concerned or questioning about as well. So, again, that website, smartinvesting2000.com. Well, let's get into it again. A lot of news on the economy right now. We'll talk about those employment numbers. And while the headline numbers for the jobs report showed results that beat expectations, when you look closely at the report, it actually shows a softening labor market, which is exactly what the Fed wants to see. Non-farm payrolls in the month of November showed a gain of 199,000, which topped the estimate of 190,000, and the unemployment rate fell to 3.7%, which was better than the forecast for 3.9%. Now, the growth of 199,000 is below the average monthly gain of 240,000. So there's kind of, again, that slowdown that we've been expecting in the labor market. And it's also important to point out that some of the gain in November was attributed to the end of the UAW strike and the actor strike as well. So in fact, while employment and manufacturing increased 28,000 in November, there was actually a 30,000 person increase in motor vehicles and parts as workers returned from strike. Also, too, the employment and information also had a gain of 10,000 in the month, but motion picture and sound recording industries added 17,000 jobs as the resolution of the labor disputes came to an end in the industry. Now, the strikes have created volatility in the numbers over the last few months, and that can also be seen in the revision to September, where total non-farm payroll employment was actually revised lower by 35,000. With these major strikes now behind us, we should be able to see, to see a better reading in these job numbers moving forward. Another major area the Fed likely has their eye on is the change in average hourly earnings, which points to wage inflation. In the month of November, hourly average hourly earnings increased by 4%, which was the lowest reading since May 2021. 
Overall, this report points to the concept that a soft landing is still a real possibility. We believe the labor market will continue to soften, which should be good news for inflation and our economy. Yeah, and I mean, again, you really break down this report and, you know, the it's kind of funny. We're still in this situation where, you know, good news is bad news and essentially bad news is good news. Mm-hmm. And initially the 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 tenure note, the bonds, they kinda of spiked on this because it's like, oh my gosh, the, the labor market came in hotter than and anticipated. But again, you remove the thirty five thousand job revision, uh, you know, there's kind of that nine thousand person beat. And then again you dig through those numbers with the strikes, it, it, it really shows a softening labor market. And and the big thing I look at too is Softening does not mean bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, we still added, you know, 199,000 jobs in the month. It's not as good as it was, but you can't maintain, you know, 240, 250,000 jobs created every single month. That's just not going to happen over the next three, five years, especially when you have an unemployment rate at 3.7%. Yeah, ultimately not a bad thing. And again, you know, short term, the Fed is really keeping a close eye on this and they're trying to see these numbers cool. And so if if we're going to continue to see, you know, job numbers looking really, really hot, then that could lead to more rate hikes and I mean kind of extend this this little stint that we're in right now. So, you know, we're looking for this Goldilocks effect where we don't want things to be too good, we don't want things to be too bad. We kind of just want things to be right in the middle and that's that's what we're seeing. Yeah, and I mean, it'd be problematic where all of a sudden, you know, jobs start seeing declines. That's where the issue would be. But I mean, I think, frankly, you could see job growth slow down to 100,000 a month. And Mm -hmm. I mean, that would still be a good job market. And you have to distinguish the fact that we're not going to see what we saw, you know, last year. That's just not a normal labor market. And we are kind of reentering, again, a normalized economy. We're removing, I think, a lot of the fluctuations, the volatility that we saw with COVID. And, And we're getting back to Again, a more normalized level type situation. Yeah, and unemployment again isn't it isn't <laughs> high, so it's it's not like we need uh, a ton of jobs to be opening. There's there's more available jobs open right now than there are people looking for work, and so again, all these numbers seem to be really promising. Yeah, and and the big one too that I, I think is quite interesting is again that average hourly earnings at four percent. I mean, that's what I I personally would keep a close eye on, and you know it, it's interesting to follow the headline number on, on how many jobs are being created, but there is going to be, a, of course, revisions that occur. That average hourly earnings is is really, I believe, the indicator for inflation that, that you need to keep an eye on, because if that ticked higher again, that's where, you know, they're going to have to pass through those costs on the goods, on services. That's where inflation could kind of re-enter an elevated level. We want to make sure that wage inflation stays around a, a more normalized level. And I was kind of looking at the numbers in 2019, and it was in like the three percent range. So I think we could see wage inflation again retrench to you know a three percent level, which we're not too far from. Yeah, and again, Chase, that's that's a good gauge that looks at the U.S. worker as a whole. And again, that it's not a headline number, but it's an important factor to keep an eye on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And also, too, on the uh, kind of volatility that we talked about, they, they were saying that December you will also see a little bit more volatility from um, the strikes that were happening with the UAW and also to the actors and uh, screenwriters and so forth. So you will still see a little bit more next month. But I think as we enter 2024, I think we will see a lot of those impacts in the past. And we will see that, again, more normalized number. Because right now, to get a good number on the headliner, you got to dig through all that. Well, what happened last? month with a strike how many workers you know were gone in manufacturing how many workers came back it's really kind of a more complicated picture it'd be a lot easier just to see the impacts without those strikes which again we should see beginning of next year
Well, next up to kind of continuing on with that that labor market, we're going to talk about the JOLTS report. Now, while it may not look like good news when reading the headline number, the, the JOLTS report actually showed exactly, again, what the Fed is looking for here. Job openings of $8.73 million in the month of October were below the estimate of $9.4 million and showed a decline of 617000 or 6.6 compared to the previous month. This also marked the lowest number since March 2021. While this all sounds a little troubling, it shows the labor market again is softening, which is what the Fed has wanted to see. It also shows that the labor market is still doing all right, considering there are still 1.3 job openings to every available worker compared to the pre-pandemic ratio that was about 1.2 at that time. Yeah, and again, this is just going back to the point that a softening labor market does not mean a weak labor market. And actually seeing here the fact that, you know, we're at 1.3. I mean, we still have some room to enter, you know, a good labor market with job openings continue to decline. And, you know, I I still feel confident that we're still going to see job openings, you know, reduce over the next few months. But I don't think we're going to see anything that's, you know, below that one ratio that even if you hit one, that's still not a bad labor market. Mm-hmm. I mean, back in you know 2019, pre-pandemic, when we hit 1.2, it was like, wow, there's so many job openings yeah. out there. <laughs> and now it's like, oh, my gosh, the job openings are falling. It's a problem. It's just not the case, in, in my opinion. I think, again, you have to distinguish between a softening labor market and a weak labor market. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, next up to kind of moving on from the, the labor market there, I want to talk about these drug companies. Now, the Biden administration has opened the door to seize the patents of certain costly medications for drug, from drug makers. The administration has an unveiled framework that outlines the factors federal agencies should consider in deciding whether to use marching rights, which actually take patents for drugs and shares them with other pharmaceutical companies if the public cannot reasonably access the medications. Now, officials can factor in the price of a medication in deciding to break a patent. While this may sound like a nice practice, I do worry about the long-term ramifications here. While drug companies often do have nice margins on drugs to succeed, people generally do not discuss the billions of dollars that is spent on research and development for drugs that, again, do not succeed. If drug companies cannot offset these costs with high margins on successful drugs, the industry could have major problems. Also, uh, what would incentive? What would the incentive be to spend billions of dollars on research and development for a new drug when you could just potentially wait for another company to come up with the solution and then use their patent that has been taken from them by the government? This could ultimately stifle innovation in the industry. Yeah, I mean, this is something that, frankly, I mean, we have a pharmaceutical company in the portfolio, and, and I, I want to keep a close eye on this because it could really hurt margins, really hurt earnings for businesses if they come in and say, yeah, actually, we're going to take this patent because it's just too expensive for the general public and we're going to share that with other companies. I mean, that would really destroy the earnings of a business because if it's, you know, one of their higher margin drugs, their earnings would just fall off a cliff because now all the other drug companies can come in and say, oh, okay, well, now we have the the science behind it. We can just replicate that and distribute it at a much lower cost. And the the hard part is it, it, it's like, yeah, that sounds great because, again, yeah, that would reduce the cost of drugs. But I want to reemphasize that point. Well, if there's no profits down the road, why the heck would I spend all that money on yeah. research and development when I can just take your patent in a couple of years after you spent billions of dollars on research and development? Yeah, it's it's definitely a, an interesting situation because, you know, on the one side you have these drug companies that are selling these drugs for – 
a lot of money and a lot of people rely on those drugs to live in some cases. And so it's like, wow, these drug companies are making so much money. But again, on the other side, you have these drug companies that spent all the billions and years worth of, you know, resources to put in to create these drugs. And then, you know, they do that so that they can make money on the back end. And, you know, obviously it seems like a problem, <clears throat> but, you know, just being able to extract the patent from a company that spent billions of dollars to create it seems like a short-term solution which yeah okay this will you know stabilize drug prices across the board um, and make them more available to the public but you know again what are these companies going to look at going forward okay do we want to invest all of this money in this time maybe maybe not i mean it'll be interesting to see how that actually works in practice um, you know whether the government is really into you know, taking patents or if there's any type of compensation that they give the companies for taking those patents or, you know, what their parameters are going to be for actually doing that. Um, again, it's it, it's tricky either way that you look at it, but just being able to take patents, I don't know, that's, I mean, it's, that's intellectual property and that's, that's valuable that you're essentially just stealing. Yeah, and the, and the problem is they've had these marching rights already. Mm -hmm. I, I forget the, I, I want to say it was, came about in like the 80s. But this is now the first time that they can look solely at cost mm -hmm. of a drug and say, ah, you know, that's just not fair that you're charging that much. Now we're going to seize your patent. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where, I, again, I mean, it depends how much they spent. And you got to understand, obviously, you don't just go in, make a drug within six months and be like, wow, this is great. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to make all this money from it. I mean, it normally takes years. And, you know, actually, our pharmaceutical company, they... They spend a lot of money, spend a lot of time on a, a recent drug. Uh, they were kind of trying to compete in the, uh, you know, the obesity drugs and, and kind of the weight loss drugs. And, you know, they entered a phase two trial. Well, it didn't pan out in terms of the effectiveness of it. People weren't taking well to the drug, so they had to stop that. Now, that's just wasted capital mm -hmm. going through that cycle all the way up to a phase two research study. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes people go to a phase three and it's not successful. That's even more capital that was sunk into it. So you have to, again, balance that perspective and saying, well, who's going to compensate them for all that lost capital, essentially? And frankly, I, I'm not worried yet about that pharmaceutical company that we own in the portfolio, but as an investor, this is something you have to keep an eye on because it, it could drastically change the industry. It, it definitely could because if, if I'm running a drug company, you know, I, I mean, you'd have to really look closely at, well, how much are we going to charge these drugs? And maybe we don't want the patent to get taken, so we're going to have to decrease the price that we're selling these drugs for, but also that means we're not going to have the cash flow to put into research and development. So in other words, we're just going to milk the um, the patents that we have and create, you know, cash flow off of that. But that, you know, 10 to 15 years means no additional drugs brought to market. Yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely something, it's a changing dynamic that, that we got to keep an eye on. And, and, you know, as investors, you got to look at it from that perspective. Uh, just if you do have pharmaceutical companies, it, it could be a, a major shift in how you analyze those businesses. Um, well, next up, too, did want to talk about the the Magnificent Seven. Uh, again, those stocks are, um, you know, very, very prevalent in the news. Uh, you know, kind of wanted to equate them. You know, remember a few years ago, the, the FANG stocks was Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, and then Apple started doing well, so they made it the FANG, F-A-A-N-G stocks, <laughs> and added Apple to the equation. Obviously, uh, two of those companies have since changed their names, Facebook to Meta, and obviously Google to Alphabet. But they have actually now been replaced by what is known as the Magnificent Seven, which are 
a lot of the same companies. Actually, I think all of the same companies except Netflix. Just added a few, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, NVIDIA, Tesla, and Meta. Now, people still believe that index investing is a great way to invest and diversify your portfolio. But when you look at the S&P 500, you should realize the Magnificent 7, well, they've really carried the index. And actually, year-to-date, to a return of about 20%. Now, if you look at the equal weight index, it is actually up only around 6% this year. So most of that gain has come from those magnificent seven companies. And actually, in fact, there's about 44% of stocks that are showing negative results in the index here. You may think you had diversification with the S&P 500, but currently the seven stocks account for close to 30% of the index since it's a market weight index. These companies' uh, stock... Prices have continued to perform, but history has proven time and time again that any equity trading at such high valuations eventually comes back to reality. When that happens, investors in these seven stocks and also the index will have disappointing earnings. Unfortunately, we can't tell you when that will happen, only that history has proven itself to be right 100% of the time. Yeah, and it, it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, is We actually looked at the NASDAQ as well. And, you know, had somebody that was like, ah, I think I'm just going to invest in the NASDAQ composite. And, you know, I think it's pretty diversified because there's over 3,000 holdings in it. Mm-hmm. And that's true. If you look at the NASDAQ composite, there's 3,214 holdings in that called index. But the Magnificent Seven, even worse than the S&P 500, <laughs> those seven companies occupy 49.7% of the entire NASDAQ composite. So that means... What is this math here? 3,207 companies occupy the other, we'll call it 50.3% mm-hmm. of the entire index. I mean, you have to be careful. And yes, it's so funny when, when the index has started to do well again, you're like, ah, I think I'm just going to do the S&P. I think I might just do the NASDAQ. And you don't realize the risks that you're taking here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you if you're going to invest in the index, you might as well just buy those seven companies. But then again, when you ask someone, okay, why don't you just buy these seven companies? Oh, well, that seems a little bit, you know, too risky. That seems a little bit undiversified. They are, you know, expensive. The valuations are high, so I don't want to do that. And it's like, well, basically by investing in the index right now, you are hoping that those companies do well. And so, in other words, you might as well just invest in those companies. And so, you, you kind of can look at it from a simple perspective and say, okay, well, the, the index has done well. I'm just going to invest in the index. Why has the index done well? And what could potentially change over the next, you know, five to 10 years that could have that not do as well? Yeah. And, I, you know, we were talking about this yesterday. And, you know, when, when you look at these seven companies, again, I, I'm not going to say they haven't done well. If you've held them, congratulations. But when you really fundamentally start to look at the numbers for these businesses, I, I'm going to pick on Apple, you know, a, a great company here. You know, I have their iPhone, I have a Mac, you know, it's great products and, and their services. Yeah, they're starting to continue to grow. They have great margins on that business, which also could be, again, a regulatory problem to keep an eye out on. But when you look at their growth, their sales haven't grown at all over the last year. Going forward, I don't see their sales growing, I'm going to say, 15% a year or anything like that. They trade at, gosh, last time I checked, around 30 times earnings. So, yeah, it's up, you know, very, very nicely this year. And people are like, oh, you know, I've done so well on Apple or Microsoft, these other companies. Well, I'm just going to make it easy. For it to go up another 100%, if they have no earnings growth or very limited earnings growth, that would mean their earnings multiple would be 60. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't. So you have to understand that, yet, that likelihood of this strong performance going forward 
is extremely unlikely. The only way it can come, essentially, is going to be from multiple expansion. And if the multiple doesn't expand, you're limited to what earnings growth is going to be. Not to mention, if earnings growth isn't that strong, you're probably going to get multiple contraction. Mm-hmm. So that could offset any earnings growth for the stock price. It is a big problem you have to keep an eye on. And unfortunately, these stocks, they just can't go to the moon, essentially. It's it's a fundamental issue that I would I would really heavily analyze if I held these companies. And it's it's difficult when you're looking at a stock because, you know, it's hard to look at a stock tangibly because it, it, it's almost an idea. I mean, they used to have stock certificates that you could, you could actually look at, but I like to equate it to property because property is something that a lot of people can wrap their minds around. And so, you know, as an illustration, if you could, you know, buy a house for a million dollars, let's say, and then you wanted to rent that house out, let's say you could rent it out for $80,000 a year, you have expenses, property taxes, insurance, maintenance, you know, whatever, of $20,000 a year. So that means your net is going to be $60,000 a year or $5,000 a month. Now, a real estate investor would say, okay, my cap rate on that is 6%, $60,000 a year relative to the million dollar purchase price. When we look at a stock, we don't really look at cap rate. We look at how much you are paying for those earnings. And that's what a PE or a forward PE is. Um, so in this case, on our, our million-dollar house, our price to earnings is around 16 which is kind of what the average yeah. is of, of the S&P. So that seems like a fair value. You know, if you can buy a house for a million bucks, rent it out and net $60,000 a year, that's a fair value. When we're talking about these Magnificent Seven companies and how expensive they are, we're not talking about the dollar amount of their stock price or, um, you know, what they're charging for goods. We're saying, you know, how much are you paying relative to the earnings of that company? And so, for example, back to this house illustration, this same house you could buy it for a million and get $60,000 a year. Well, would you be willing to buy that same exact house for $4 million to net out that same $60,000 a year? Probably not. The cap rate of that now is 1.5%, but the PE of that is now 67, which is right now what NVIDIA is trading at. And so everyone who is buying these companies are paying so much for those earnings. And so really what they're saying is, we hope that these companies can continue to grow. You know, back to the house illustration, maybe this isn't a really great location and it's just, you know, not worth very much right now, but there's going to be a city that's built on top of this. You know, maybe this is maybe the, the, you know, the new strip in Las Vegas or something. And so there's this future growth that's going to happen. But right now, you're not getting the earnings to justify how much you're paying. And that's really what value investing is about. You know, we can look at all these companies, how much earnings do they have? What does their balance sheet look like? And ultimately, what are we willing to pay for that company? Doesn't mean the company is good or bad, but a company can be trading at you know, $300 billion or $600 billion. Maybe we want to buy it when it's worth $300 billion or $30 a share, and then we want to sell it when it's worth $600 billion, $60 a share, even though it's the same fundamental company. Yeah, and, and a couple key words you used there a couple times, I should say, was uh, maybe. <laughs> and, I mean, that that's really what happens here. And, and again, I want to uh, – Jensen Wong, great CEO. I mean, he's done phenomenal with NVIDIA. I don't want to take any credit away from what that company has done. But investors in NVIDIA, you know, several years ago did not know they were going to lead the charge on these AI chips. Mm-hmm. And he's done such a great job pivoting. But, again, it was a maybe that that was going to happen. And congratulations, again, if you've held NVIDIA, you've done a great job, you've made a lot of money. But the question is, what next? Mm-hmm. And a big issue I see with people 
is, you know, on NVIDIA, I don't even know what you've made on average per year with that stock. I'm going to say 50% per year, and I don't have the numbers in front of me. But you've had this annualized return rate that is just astronomical compared to your expectations. Well, what if that stock only does like 10% a year now going forward, which is still a great return. You're just going to be as happy. It, it It's going to be harder to hold that stock when you're not getting the same type of returns. And I actually just kind of pulled up Apple here to kind of carry on from my earlier point about, yeah, trades at a 4P of 30, exactly, 29.88, I guess, if you want to be exact. This year, they're looking for earnings growth of 6.8%. So if they were to maintain a forward PE of 30, essentially, that means the stock would go up 6.8% this year. Mm-hmm. Now, you're up, I think, uh, 50 60% this year on Apple, and yay, I'm so excited. How does a 6.8% return sound next year? Not as good. You know, you're not going to be thrilled with that. When In reality, if you did 7% on a stock, it's not great, but it's not bad. Mm-hmm. But those people that have held those big tech companies, those magnificent seven, they're not going to be okay with 6 to 8% on a stock. They're going to want those excess returns of 20 30% per year, which I, I just don't see happening going forward because of those valuations. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the market cap of these companies, they're in the trillions now, some of them. And so... Okay, for a company that's growing at 30% per year, does that mean in a couple years these companies are going to be worth $20 trillion? I mean, it's just at some point things have to come back to reality. And, you know, the biggest company in the world can't – the only way that they could potentially do that is to horizontally integrate and start buying more and more companies because vertically there's nowhere to go. They've already taken everything up, and so they have to expand into you know different types of sectors and different types of industries, which Chase and I were talking about yesterday is kind of like what General Electric was doing. General Electric was a great company for a long time. People had a nice loved dividend. it. People loved it, and then they had nowhere else to grow, so they had to start going horizontally, and they lost control. They you know Quality started to suffer, um, and you know now look at what's happened to that. So, yeah, the stock price over the last it's, just, it's done okay this last year, but obviously it's still well off its peak. And you you had a nice trough there a couple of years ago, so it, it's you know it's a great point, and you know that growth is going to have to come from somewhere, and that growth is going to have to be there to justify multiples of thirty times. It, it's just it's the reality of investing. So if you own these stocks, I mean, yeah, look at the numbers. Fundamentally, think about how can this continue to grow, mm-hmm. and are you okay with holding a stock that? is that expensive. And in theory, I mean, Apple doesn't have to go down 50%. Frankly, Apple could go down 50%. I mean, that would put it right back in line with the historical multiple of about 15, 16 (laughs) times. So, I mean, it's a possibility. Or what could happen is kind of what happened in 2022 when Apple fell strongly and then it came back again. It could fall strongly again next year, come back again. And then over the next five, 10 years, it's just kind of trading, you know, in this these swings that happen with it. But you're not going to see 60% I don't think next year for Apple, followed by another 20%. I mean, that that's where the multiples would just become extremely outrageous, even more expensive than they are today. Well, hopefully these uh, topics are helpful for you. And again, we send out that Smart Investing newsletter every Friday evening. Covered some other great topics this this last week, I'm going to say this last year. Talking about like life expectancy, talking about the U.S. debt. I know that's a big concern that a lot of people have. Talked a little bit more about hot stocks, why we like to avoid those hot stocks. Talked about lithium, actually, in fact. Talked about that short-term investing, ExxonMobil, gold value. A couple other topics there as well. If you want to take part in our Smart Investing newsletter, start getting that every Friday. Just go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that is smartinvesting2000.com. 
www.thepeakpodcast.com. Well, as I said, we do take the, the emails, the notes on our website here now to, to look at those questions for investors, you know, the everyday individual here. One question we got here was from uh, Jason, actually, in Wisconsin. It says, hello, Wilsey Asset Management. I've been a longtime listener of your show and have enjoyed learning with you guys along the way. I'm hoping you can analyze ticker CRWS Crown Crafts on your show sometime. Uh, we use dividends for income, and we have owned this one for a few years. It seems to be a company that stays under the radar, but has always paid a nice yield for us over the years. We own about 25 companies in the portfolio, and due to its recent drop, it looks like we could add more CRWS to rebalance at these levels. This will give us a higher dividend yield with a lower cost basis. They just purchased Manhattan Toy not too long ago, so I'm sure there is some short-term expense there. We also like that they deal with Targets, Walmarts, etc., along with supplying Chick-fil-A with their kids' meal toys as well. We know Chick-fil-A is a private company, but we like knowing we own a little piece of their business dealings as well. Thanks for your time. Uh, you know, obviously Chick-fil-A, a great spot. Funny, we used to hate Chick-fil-A when we were in college, but... Uh, yeah, that was for a different reason <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah, we would finish our football games, and they would have the Chick-fil-A sandwiches and the pickle juice just... They, they've been in. sitting marinating there for hours, and so it's all soaking wet. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're starving, so you still eat it. But it's not the same as when you go to a Chick Fil A and it's you know actually there and it's fresh. And everything. Yeah, it was you know so funny because I had never really eaten Chick Fil A, and everybody's like, "Oh, Chick Fil A is so good." And I'm like, "I don't know what you guys are talking about. Chick Fil A is not good." Yeah. <laughs> and then I had it after uh, school, <laughs> after NAU, and I was like, "Oh, okay, I see what all the hype's about. It it is a pretty good, pretty good little." Uh, chicken chicken spot yeah, there. I love Chick-fil-A. Well, anyways, let's take a closer look at the numbers after that little side story about Chick-fil-A. So looking at Crown Crafts, Inc., again, the ticker symbol is CRWS. Looking at the short percentage of float, it's only 0.2%, so not much on the short side there at all. Very little institutional ownership at just 37.3%. I see price to earnings. That looks quite attractive at 11.8 versus an industry average of 34. Price to sales comes in also quite attractive at 0.6 compared to the industry at 0.7. Price of tangible book value, which tells us, again, what we're paying for the tangible assets of the company. It's at 1.3, which is also below the industry average of 34.6. And price to cash flow at 5.3, below the industry average at 8.2. So very, very strong valuation ratios here. Last one, as well as the PEG ratio, looks at 2.4, which, again, very, very nice. Looking at the growth rates here, this is... Uh, Big problem, earnings over the last one year down 47.6%. Have to understand why earnings fell that much. I will say it's still positive that earnings were down that much, but your P.E. ratio is still that strong. Tells me that they still have good earnings. Earnings over the last five years, though, average about 2% per year. Sales over the last one year down 1.2%. Five-year estimated growth rate on earnings per share going forward, 5%. So it looks like maybe they're coming out of that trough, which if they are part of that furnishings sector, we know that furnishings took that wild swing up during COVID. And then now people bought a lot of furnishings, so they haven't needed them the last few years. I've said a few times that I do believe going forward, you're going to see that normalization where now you can start to grow back off that that lower base level. And I think furnishings could be an interesting place to be perhaps over the next five years. Now, looking at the dividend, this is what Jason's talking about here. Nice dividend yield of 6.3%. company uses 74.4% of their earnings to pay that a little bit higher than I'd like to see normally. So, we'll understand, again, is that earnings growth going to continue? Because that would, again, normalize that, that payout ratio. 
Now, looking at the balance sheet, very strong current ratio here, 4.3. So, company's got a ton of liquidity here. I do see the quick ratio, though, is just 1.7. So, big discrepancy, but still good liquidity. Reason for that is the current ratio includes inventory in the current assets, where the quick ratio excludes it. So, not being kind of surprised here by the fact that this is a I'm assuming toy company. So a lot of probably inventory on that balance sheet, which frankly is something to keep an eye on because too much inventory could mean discounted sales going forward. Now looking at a debt to equity, good balance sheet here, just 0.5 below the industry average of 1.7. So not a problem at all on the debt side of the equation. And now looking at the current price for CRWS and Crown Crafts, it's $5.08. I see the 52-week high is $5.99. And the low was $4.11. I see year-to-date obviously hasn't done as well as a lot of the other stocks or the stock market, I should say, as it's down about 0.4%. But also, I'm going to say not too bad. I do see over the last three years, though, it is down about 20.4%. Now, unfortunately, this company has a market cap of just $52 million. So it is a tiny, tiny business. There's no analysts on this company, so I can't get a target sell price. Frankly, well, there's no earnings estimates. So you're kind of in the dark here. You're on your own. I mean, frankly, I know they just acquired a company, but, you know, at $52 million, they could be a target perhaps of a Mattel, of a, you know, Hasbro or, or something if they are in that toy industry with such a small market cap there. So it could be an acquisition target. As I said, we generally don't like to buy a company for that reason. And, you know, as I said, you're kind of in the dark here, Jason. you got to do a lot of research on your own to justify this investment without any forward earnings estimates and an idea of what analysts are thinking about this stock going forward. Uh, well, hopefully that was helpful there, Jason. Again, you want to take a closer look at a, have us take a closer look at a stock company, Equity We Call them. Go to our website, that's smartinvesting2000.com. Again, it's smartinvesting2000.com. Leave us a note right there. You'll see a, a button in the middle of the page that says, Smart Investing Show questions. Click on that, type in the note, and uh, we'll be sure to get to that at an upcoming show here. Well, I did want to go back to Harrison here. I know he's got to his financial planning topic. Most of the time we go to him out of studio, give him a call. But today, since he is in studio, I'll turn the floor over to you here, Harrison. I know you're talking about, I think, income at the end of the year. So Income at the end of the year. So, yeah, as we get closer to the end of the year, it's getting more important to review your income levels and make any necessary adjustments before December 31st. A lot of people think that, um, you know, the magic is done in April when they talk to their tax person or when they file their taxes. But really... You know, before the end of the year is where it all comes together. And when you're analyzing it, your income, it's helpful to identify your expected level of adjusted gross income, your, your AGI, um, the number of itemized deductions that you'll have, if any, your amount of total taxable income, and the amount of taxable income that is going to be subject to ordinary income tax rates. So your adjusted gross income is going to be the sum of all your reportable income, which could be wages, capital gains, interest, IRA distribution, Social Security, rental properties, K-1s. Um, all of that is a part of your AGI. And so what I tell people is, you know, if you're an individual, you've got AGI. If you're a business, you've got revenue. So our AGI is like our revenue. So after tallying that AGI, next is the itemized deductions, which are comprised of your mortgage interest, state income and property taxes, charitable donations, and medical expenses. Now, tax players, taxpayers can claim the larger of either their itemized deductions, so the sum of all those, or they can claim the standard deduction, which this year for a married couple is 27700 So 
your itemized or standard deduction, again, you claim whichever one's larger. And a lot of people now don't itemize after the tax changes in 2018. Um, the standard deduction got increased and the, the itemized deductions got limited. So for most people, they just have a standard deduction of 27.7. And basically, that's like your expenses. So again, businesses have revenue minus expenses. Individuals have AGI minus your deduction. And that that result is going to give you your taxable income. So AGI minus your deduction equals your taxable income, or, or in other words, your profit. Businesses have, have profit, individuals have taxable income. That taxable income is ultimately what is subject to your tax rates. That's what gets subject to tax. And so once you have your taxable income, from there you can break out how much of that taxable income is made up of long-term capital gains and qualified dividends. And it's important to separate those out because those gains and dividends are taxed at a lower rate than the rest of your income. The rest of your income is taxed at ordinary tax rates, gets applied to the normal tax brackets. So from there, once you've calculated everything, you've got your AGI, your deductions, your taxable income, your taxable income after the capital gains and dividends, from there you can determine what tax bracket you'll be in the tax rate of those gains and dividends, whether your adjusted gross income is going to trigger any additional net investment income tax. That's a 3.8% tax on investment income like gains, interest, dividends, rental income, um, or if you're going to trigger any additional Medicare premiums because of a higher AGI. And so if you're close to any of those thresholds, you can take action to either increase or decrease your income. So maybe it makes sense to make a Roth conversion before the end of the year. Maybe it makes sense to realize some capital gains if you can do so at 0% or at a low tax rate. Uh, maybe it makes sense to sell some losses to offset some other gains or reduce your income. Maybe it makes sense to make a charitable donation because your AGI is, is high enough where you're about to trigger, uh, you know, IRMA. Um, or, you know, maybe it makes sense to contribute to a retirement account to push your income in, in one direction or another. So, you know, regardless of how old you are or where you are in your, your you know, life plan, this is an important thing to do because, again, everyone really just pays the taxes. You either get a refund or you have to make a payment. But the ultimate um, decision of how much taxes you're going to be paying is based on this income and our, that, that deadline is coming up December 31st. And so by looking at your income this year and then projecting how your income is going to change over time, that can tell you what move should be made year to year to year. You know, maybe this is a high income year. We want to find expenses. We want to find ways to defer income. Or maybe the opposite is true. Maybe this is a year where where there's not a lot of income because, um, you know, there was a lull in, in employment or, you know, there was some large expenses that you had or whatever. So that means maybe there's some room to accelerate some income, do some conversions, realize some gains, things like that. And that's really what tax planning is. It's looking on what can we do strategically so that this year, next year, five years, 10 years down the road, your tax liability is as low as it possibly can be. Yeah, and I think that's a great point, too, because a lot of times people they'll do what I'm going to call their tax planning after the year is over because they go to their CPA, they do their taxes, and they're like, okay, how can I reduce my tax? Well, there's no way to reduce your taxes. Well, I don't want to say there's no You can still put money in like an IRA. There's some small things you can do after the year has closed. Or it's, you know, categorizing what you've already done. So yeah. can I can I treat this income as something else? Can I treat this expense as something else? Should I claim it a certain way? But 
the income and expenses are there. It's just trying to categorize them. But before you get to the end of the year, you still have the ability to actually increase or decrease your level of income, which, again, is where a lot of the work is done. A lot of value is added. Yeah, and I, I wanted to bring up an example as well just because, you know, we looked at this uh, – just about a week or so ago for a client. And, you know, we talked about tax loss harvesting before. And, and generally, we're not, I'm going to say, big advocates of just selling a position to take the tax loss. But, you know, it, it comes down to understanding the full picture. A lot of times people just want to do tax loss harvesting because they've, they've heard that word. They think it makes sense. And, yeah, I'll sell something to get that tax loss. Well, in this case, we had a client and, you know, we looked at the break-even point of selling the position, taking the tax loss. What would that be his impact on the tax savings? And the break-even on the stock would have been like a 40% gain. Mm -hmm. Now, what's the likelihood that that stock goes up 40% in the next 31 days? Uh, not very high. Probably not good. <laughs> <laughs> so that made sense. But a lot of times people, they'll do it, and maybe it's only a 5% break even. Mm -hmm. That is taking a huge risk on now the, the movement on that stock going up because now, and it sounds crazy, yeah, stock can go up 10% in a month. That That's not a outlandish idea. sometimes. Yeah, and it's something that you have to really look at all the numbers. And when you're doing that tax planning, you have to understand the full picture. You can't just take little pieces and be like, oh, well, I heard that was a good idea, so I should do it. No, you have to understand that full picture. And I know that's what you do a great job of with your clients. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's not just looking at that taxable income. You know, your taxable income ultimately determines it the tax that you'll pay, but adjusted gross income is very important as well. And ultimately, you want to find a target of where those numbers should really come in at because, you know, maybe you can do something and the taxable income parameters look good, but then that's going to cause a problem on your adjusted gross income. So you have to find a range to say, okay, I want my AGI to be under this. I want my taxable income to be under that. I want my capital gains and dividends to be, you know, in this range so that you can come in exactly where you want because, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of people don't even know how much taxes they pay. If I ask somebody, hey, how much did you pay in taxes federally last year? It's like, oh, I don't know. I got a refund of $1,000. Okay, well, that's not the amount of taxes that you pay. And, I mean, the government just likes to spend money. So if you're going to give it to them, they're going to spend it. So do what you can to make sure you're paying the least amount of taxes possible. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to say it's, you know, it might sound like a lot of gibberish here with like the AGI, the, you know, we talk about Maggie, we talk about Irma, all these different things. And, you know, if it's just kind of too much for you and you don't understand your tax situation. That's where we highly encourage people, you know, give Harrison a call at the office. I mean, you could, you know, look at using his financial planning services. Just go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, smartinvesting2000.com. You can hit the free consultation button there, and, and we'll get in contact with you. Or as I said, you can call the office, 858-546-4306, and 858-546-4306. And I believe, Harrison, your extension number four. I am four, yes. Knew it. Good. Well, hey, uh, good topic as always, Harrison. Th thanks for the uh, the wisdom there on into your kind of, I'm going to say, tax planning. Do you want to go to our next question here that, that we got on our, our website? This one's from Jan. says, hi, Brent and Chase. Thanks so much for the advice you've been giving all these years. I've been listening to Brent and now with Chase since around 2000. Could you please go over the fundamentals for MPW? It makes about 5% of my non-IRA account, and I'm thinking of adding more shares to bring it up to 6 to 7%. Thanks. That was real briefly on the concentration. I mean, yeah, 6 7%, I would not say is an over-concentration in the portfolio there. So depending on your cost basis and other holdings, yeah, it could make sense that the numbers look good on MPW here. So looking at, again, Medical Properties Trust is the, the company's name. It is a REIT in the healthcare 
facilities. Short percentage, very high on this company, 32.8%. See institutional ownership, though, 78.4%. No price to earnings for this business. See price to sales at 2.0, below the industry average of 4.7. Price to tangible book value, wow, 0.3, below the industry average of 9.3. And talk about owning real estate at a discount. I mean, again, you're paying 30 cents on the dollar for the tangible assets for this business, which are, you know, hospitals, acute care centers, things like that. So, I mean, that, that's a, a very good value depending on, on how this business outlet looks. Looking at the price to cash flow, 5.1, also below the industry average of 15.6. Nothing on the earnings growth here. Sales growth over the last one year down 12.5%. I see sales over the last five years, well, they average about 11.2%. I see earnings growth going forward for this business for the next five years down 9.4%. Not surprised by that with rising interest rates is going to impact the, the company's bottom line here. Looking at the dividend yield, uh, this looks a little bit strange at 18.8%. I believe that's over the last 12 months is what the yield has been. I do know that they did reduce that dividend recently. So going forward, it's not at that 18.8%. I believe it's uh, around 12, 13% is what you're actually looking at. I do see that uh, there's nothing on the payout ratio because no earnings for the business. Very important. I always talk about with REITs, though. They have a lot of non-cash expenses that occur on that real estate like depreciation, which isn't really a cash expense, obviously. So want to look at the cash flow, also known as the funds from operations or FFO is what we'll take a look at for what we're paying going forward. But that's what you want to look at to see if that dividend is sustainable going forward, not so much the earnings because that depreciation is such a large factor where it's not going to impact a lot of the other, I'm going to say, normal businesses in the, the market there. Turning to the balance sheet, though, current ratio 0.9, a little bit lower than I'd like to see. Debt to equity, 1.2, slightly above the industry average of 1.0. I still believe a debt to equity of 1.2 is, uh, it's okay. It's not, I would say, problematic. And especially in real estate, talk about depreciation. If you actually look at the way the balance sheet works, is a company owns assets, they depreciate those assets over time. I'm always kind of more curious on, well, what is the market value of those properties? Because it kind of underscores how strong that balance sheet could potentially be. Looking at the net margin for the business, I said no earnings, so it's negative 2.4%. So again, that's where it comes back down to understand the cash flow rather than the earnings. And especially too with these REITs, they can sell properties, which is going to impact their earnings in different ways because if they took a loss on the property, they got a big gain on it, it's really going to create variability in those earnings uh, for the, the business here. Looking at the current price for MPW, it is $4.69. I see the 52-week high here, $14, and the 52-week low, $4.04. Year-to-date return, the stock's down about 52.6%. Over the last one year, uh, down about 56% as well. Market cap, I'm going to say a decent-sized company with a $2.8 billion market cap. Going forward for this business out to December 2024, I do see estimated earnings per share here. Excuse me, not estimated earnings per share. Estimated FFO or the funds from operations I just discussed at 1.43. That would give us a target sell price of $23.74. So, I mean, you're paying about 3.3 times the future cash flow, essentially, of this company. I mean, it, it, it's just... I'm going to say a phenomenal value, and this, this company's been uh, in the headlines a lot. Uh, if you kind of look at this business just with different things regarding a couple of their tenants, um, you know, Steward and Prospect, there's been a lot of kind of news surrounding the, the question marks with can those operators get out of the problems that they had during COVID as cash flow for them was quite problematic. And the, the reason that impacts an MPW so much is because, well, 
can they pay their rent to MPW if they're not generating profits, not generating cash flow? But I will say COVID, a lot of people would think that it was such a boon for these companies. It was actually the opposite because what happened is they had a lot of staffing issues, a lot of non-elective surgeries that is actually higher margin business for a lot of these hospital operators were put on the back burner. So it created a huge issue for the cash flow and earnings for the operators. It seems like that is starting to normalize. But if you own a, a stock like and MPW, you would want to keep a close eye on these operators. But uh, on the surface here, I, I do think MPW, I mean, the valuations are phenomenal for this company. So I'd say I'd like it, uh, depending on the rest of your portfolio, Jan, it could make some sense to add to an MPW. Well, next up, I uh, did want to move on to a, another question we got here on our website from uh, a Ron. It says, I have an IRA and a Roth account, and for each of the past few years have transferred a small amount from the IRA to the Roth and paid the taxes for the amount transferred. I am not yet of age for the required minimum distribution. When I do reach that age, will a transfer from the IRA to the Roth for the required amount satisfy the requirement, or does the amount have to be taken out of the IRA and move to a non-retirement savings account? Thank you. Good question. So, yeah, once you reach right now, you might be 73. It's being phased up to 75. But once you reach that age where you have to start taking your distributions from your pre-tax retirement accounts, IRAs, SEPs, 401ks, 457s, 403bs, whatever it is, the required distribution has to come out and it has to be taxable to you. So it cannot go into a Roth. It has to go into another investment account, a checking account, and it has to be reportable as income. If you still want to do Roth conversions, because that's what Ron's doing right now, converting from the IRA to the Roth, they're still possible, but you can only do a Roth conversion once the entire RMD required minimum distribution has been satisfied. So once you're of that age, the first money that comes out of that, uh, that account goes to satisfy the RMD. And then once that's satisfied, you can look at converting to Roth if you still want. So the only way to get around that would be you can, um, if your required distribution is relatively large and you don't need the cash flow, you can look at donating some or all of that to charity directly. That's called a qualified charitable distribution. And the reason for that is that means whatever part of the distribution goes to charity, that means it's not going to be included in your income. So it's not going to be taxable to you. I'm not saying you need to be charitable if you don't want to be, but that's that's really the only way to deal with the required distributions at that time because they have to come out, they have to be reportable, um, they cannot go into the Roth. Yeah, and that's kind of where, again, it comes back down to your whole concept of tax planning for the, the future. And, you know, as Ron said, he's been doing Roth conversions, which I always tell people can and maybe sometimes doesn't make sense, mm -hmm. but it really depends on your situation. The benefit is, is you know, if you do them properly, you can really reduce those RMDs because once you get to age 72, 73, 75, 80, you can't change it. Mm -hmm. The RMD is coming out one way or another unless you want to pay, what, a 25% penalty on it. Yeah, it used to be 50% they reduced it, but, I mean, that penalty is in addition to the federal and state taxes, so it's it's not what you want to do. And, um, you know, the, the problem is when you start taking the distributions, they're not that large. Um, the first withdrawal that you have to take is about 4% of the account. So 4% of whatever you have in your IRA is going to be taxable to you. Um, but it really becomes more of an issue when you're in your 80s and into your 90s because now the distribution is 6, 7, 8, 9% of your account. And if your account is 
been invested over that time and then still able to grow, you know, now your account might be twice the size as what it was when you started and the distribution that you have to take is also twice as large. So that means the dollar amount of the distribution is exponentially larger than um, it was when you were in your early 70s. So, you know, the good news is if you're not of that age that you know that it's something that's going to be happening and you can project, okay, well, what do I think my investments are going to grow at? What tax bracket am I going to be at when I look at those distributions and I look at the rest of the income that I have? And then really, you know, the question of do a conversion or not really comes down to how much should I do in each individual year? And sometimes it makes sense to do it. But again, the, the, what you want to figure out is how much exactly should you do while being aware of not only the taxable income that you're going to be subject to, but also how that's going to influence your adjusted gross income. Because when you're doing those distributions, now you're on Medicare. So again, your AGI, your adjusted gross income is going to influence what you're paying in Medicare premiums as well. So there's a bunch of different factors you have to look at um, to make sure that you're doing it effectively and actually, you know, saving your money on taxes. Yeah, and it's an interesting point, too, because I'll say, oh, okay, I'm just going to convert everything. I don't want to, you know, pay taxes on the RMDs and so forth in the future. And frankly, that's not a good strategy either, because if you convert at, say, 33% or, you know, even in the higher tax brackets, even at, what, 20, 28%, I think, is another tax bracket. 22, 24, the middle tiers right now. Yeah. And so, you know, people will be doing conversions when they're still working, potentially, and they've got their income from wages. But if you look at their income in retirement, you know, they're going to have Social Security and then some other income on top of that. They could be in a lower tax bracket anyway, and you don't need to do conversions. And that way, if you do the conversions, you're basically guaranteeing yourself to pay that higher tax rate, and you're not going to save anything on the back end because you wouldn't have been subject to a higher tax rate anyway. So you really have to look at how is your income going to change over time, and that will determine how much, if any, should be converted. You know, also look at your capital gains, dividends, when you're going to sell property, anything that has an influence on your income so you can plan the right time and how to go about doing that. Yeah, and then just one kind of last thought for Ron there is I know he kind of brought it up, but a lot of people don't consider it as well. Is if you don't need the money, don't just put it in your checking savings account. You unfortunately you can't put it in the Roth, as we said, but you can still put it in an investment account, still have that work for you. It grows tax favored, obviously, you know, ten uh, not ten, excuse me, zero fifteen, twenty percent is what the, the capital gains taxes are on capital gains and dividends on the federal side. So it's still tax favored, but um, you know, it, it's if you don't need the money, it's a way that you can still grow the money essentially in the long term. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that was helpful there, Ron. I uh, did want to move on to, I think I have time for, for one more question here uh, from Sean. Uh, just very simple message, LAC, where do you see it going? So let's take a quick look here at LAC. What I get here is Lithium America's Corp. Uh, again, that ticker symbol, LAC. Right now I see nothing on the short side, nothing on the institutional owner side either. Not a lot of information, frankly. Nothing for price to earnings, no price to sales. So uh, very interesting. It looks like, you know, it is a, a industrial metals and mining company, assuming on the lithium front. So I, it doesn't look like they have any sales just yet. Maybe they are just in the process of doing the mining and not actually selling. We want to understand that aspect if I was looking at buying this business. And frankly, that would be a deal breaker for me if they don't have any actual numbers for sales and earnings. I see price to tangible book value 3.6 below the industry average of 15.6. So that's the only real valuation I get. Nothing for earnings growth, nothing for sales growth, no dividend for the business. 
There is a, a balance sheet for the business, a current ratio of 3.4, so they do have good liquidity above the industry average of 2.5. Not much debt on the balance sheet either, so 0.2, half the industry average is 0.4. So, you know, even if they don't have sales and earnings, I guess they can still exist for quite a while with their, their current cash on hand. Um, but again, it's, it's real speculation at this point. Looking at the, the current price for LAC, it's $6.63. 52-week high here. $12.38 and the 52 week low well $6.20 so obviously closer to that that 52 week low than the 52 week high uh, also very strange I don't see much on the, the historical returns for this company I don't know if this is a more recent stock uh, wouldn't surprise me obviously with no sales no earnings uh, but definitely a lot of question marks here Sean it's really very strongly a speculative position at this point I see the market cap is a billion dollars so it is still a, a decent size business here and then again unfortunately nothing really on the estimated earnings going forward so I'm assuming Sean you're kind of looking at this as just a pure lithium play where frankly you could even buy the like a lithium ETF or something to play off that commodity and it, it wouldn't be in my opinion much different than this company because there's just no real data on this company here so it's as I said, very speculative. And, and when I look at the price of lithium, obviously, it's it's kind of really fallen quite a bit. I know year-to-date, it's down about 50%, 60%. So that's why the stock has, has really suffered as well. And I know a lot of people were really into the whole lithium hype, kind of around the whole EV movement, which, frankly, has kind of subsided a little bit. We know that people you know, uh, were quite excited with the Inflation Reduction Act and, and how that was going to give this big boom to EVs. But frankly, the follow through just has not really been there whatsoever on uh, the, the lithium front on the electric vehicles. And, you know, I, I still wonder kind of what that shift is going to look like as we go forward. I, I do think we will see EVs be a larger part of the car population going forward. But I really do believe that the huge adoption that people were anticipating is just not going to be the case. I mean, we saw the news with, you know, Ford and GM really kind of pulling back on their EV scaling plans, which I, I think is obviously the big reason that, that lithium has fallen as much as it has. So, um, frankly, Sean, I, I think I, I'd avoid this company. Um, it's just too much speculation at that point. At this point, um, I, I think I'd look elsewhere unless you, you want to go to Vegas, you want to kind of gamble here, so to speak. I, I mean, that's really what you're doing with a company like this. That's where Brent is right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. We always talk about gambling and uh, you know, when I was, it's funny, I was, I liked gambling more in college when I didn't have any money, maybe because I didn't value as money as much as I did back then or something. Well, the wins, you know, were more impactful too yeah. when you're broke. It's like, I made 20 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's like, oh, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to gamble even, you know, last time I went to Vegas, I gave myself a hundred bucks and it lasted me, I think five minutes uh, because I was playing blackjack and I, I got a hand, I split, and then I got two double down opportunities and it was like a $25 table. Dealer hit 21. I was like, this is why I don't gamble. It's <laughs> you know? not supposed to happen. <laughs> and for the record, Brent, I don't think is a gambler. So he is in <laughs> Vegas, but he is not gambling. <laughs> Just enjoying the scenery. Obviously, beautiful place. I actually talked to him yesterday, and he said uh, he was driving out and pulled in, and he's like, it is just packed. And he's like, yeah, I don't see any recession here, that's for sure. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of nice to, to again, reinforce that idea of you know the soft landing being i think very possible just because 
I mean, frankly, you go places. I mean, you know, I, I'm going to the mall today. My wife's doing some Christmas shopping with her mom, and I, I bet you the mall is going to be packed. Oh, yeah. And it's just kind of that, you know, in-person research, so to speak, where I just I, – the economy, again, is softening. But if it were in a terrible spot, people would not be spending. People would not be going out to restaurants. They wouldn't be shopping. So, again, I am still a big believer in the soft landing, but we'll have to see what happens here next year. Well, thank you for listening to the Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only and should not be used as investment advice. If you would like to discuss in more detail your investment needs or have other investment questions, feel free to call myself Chase Wilsey or Brent Wilsey as well at 858-546-4306. Please visit our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And for more educational information along with investment tips, go to our Facebook group, Smart Investing, with Brent and Chase Wilsey. So amusing to think that I did all that.